All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, and with me today is, let's see if I can get the last name right without asking. I'm going to say, is it Molly LaCroix? Did I get it? Yes. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Molly, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to connect with you. Yeah, thank you so much, um, again, just for your your patience and flexibility, listeners, uh, I've tossed Molly around a few times <laughs> trying to make this interview happen. And she has been very gracious and patient with me. So thank you so much again for, uh, for playing along and for taking some time to, to be here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Cool. Well, uh, Molly, just for people who may not be familiar with, uh, yourself and your work, can you just give us a, you know, a little bit of a bio about who you are and what are some of the things you find yourself doing? Yeah. So Molly LaCroix, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm in private practice and I got my training, my master's at a seminary. So I've always been interested in integrating the secular models of psychotherapy with scripture, theology, um, found your podcast because I love thinking about and talking about theology too. <laughs> and um Specifically, early on in my career as a therapist, got interested in working with uh, the, the deeper wounds that we carry um, that can come from trauma and can just come from life. <laughs> um, I like to use the term adversity because some of us don't resonate with that word trauma. We think of, you know, those really, really horrific things, but all of us experience adversity. And, and so my interest in healing the deeper wounds led me to some different approaches to therapy. Um, and the one that I use now exclusively is called internal family systems. Yeah, cool. Um, I had, so I had heard of internal family systems um, prior to reading your book. I think I first heard about uh, IFS through uh, another author named uh, Jonathan Puddle. 
he wrote a book <laughs> called you are enough and i yeah. i think he uses ifs and his book is like one of his uh the tools that he offers people um but yeah, I, I know why you love it so much because it's a really, <laughs> it seems to be a really cool and helpful model uh, for, for doing therapy. Um, yeah. But before we were, because I want to kind of take a, a deep dive into to some of that like you do in your book. But before we get there, um, the podcast is called Rethinking Faith. And I love to ask guests when they come on just to kind of get to know them a little bit better. Uh, a difficult question, but it's a good one. And that question is, what do you feel is perhaps the most important aspect of your own faith that you've had to rethink? Mm. It is a good question. And I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and hearing what people say. And um, for me, it, it's something we talked about before we started recording, which is moving from head to heart. So I came at faith as an adult. I was not raised in, a, in the church, which kind of has its pros and cons. <laughs> um, but I, I came at it with my head and I uh, stayed in my head for a long time. <laughs> and, and, and that, you know, recognizing the limitations of that and how it can really be a, a safe place to stay, but also disconnects us from our love. And that is the heart of our faith. And loving relationship. Um, and so that's, that's been my a big part of my journey. Yeah, that I mean, that's a huge one. Um, mm -hmm. And for me personally, that was something that when I was still a pastor, um, I actually kind of had a realization one day that um, I had all of this head knowledge about God. Uh, but I didn't have the experiential knowledge that I was told about, right? This like, Oh, you can have a, a personal relationship with Jesus or, or things like that. And um, I never, I didn't really have that. I just, I had all this, this head stuff. And so the, the head to heart has been um, a major part of my, my journey, especially most recently. Um, it's been really important. And actually uh, I read Richard Rohr's um, book on the Trinity recently, Divine Dance, which is, is really good. I, I highly recommend it. And he actually makes a similar point in there. Um, he said, do you ever wonder why Western atheism is on the rise? What does the Christian West or why does the Christian West by far produce the highest number of atheists? What I believe and have dedicated my life to reversing is that we have not moved doctrine and dogma to the level of inner experience. As long as received teaching doesn't become experiential knowledge, we're going to continue creating a high quantity of disillusioned ex-believers or on the flip side, will manufacture very rigid believers who simply hold on to doctrines in very dry and dead ways with nothing going on inside. Yeah. Wow. That's a, <laughs> that is a pithy quote. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've got to say that while this has been a journey of many years and was already in process coming to IFS and seeing how that shifted not only the healing journey for my clients, but also my own healing journey um, was instrumental in that, in that move movement from, you know, kind of the concept of a personal relationship with God to the reality of it. And, um, and there are reasons why we stay in our head that, that's a, that's a safe strategy. <laughs> and we can talk some more about that, but. 
Yeah, for sure. That I mean, it's definitely been one of my strategies, right? If I can keep everything here and abstract, then mm-hmm. like it feels more safe than actually trying to uh, live into something or embody something which can bring about like vulnerability and really scary things that, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And so if it stays here, it's nice and abstract. Uh, but as soon as uh, you start to to make that move from head into heart or you start to embody things, uh, crazy stuff happens and uh, we're, we have less control, I guess. That's and right. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, Molly, you wrote a, uh, and like you said, you wrote and published during a pandemic, um, <laughs> which is crazy. Good for you. That is an accomplishment <laughs> in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you wrote a great little book here called Restoring Relationship, Transforming Fear into Love Through Connection. And uh, one thing that you did, and you actually, you mentioned this when you talked about, um, just give us a little bit about yourself, uh, was the importance of integrating uh, psychology and like these secular methods with uh, things like theology and the Bible. And I kind of, I wanted to ask you if you could just kind of riff on um why you feel that integration is so important uh because i know for a lot of people especially depending on what um you know denomination or what what form of christianity they find themselves in psychology is a bad word <laughs> and it can be very scary so what what are some some positives for uh to integrating the two yeah yeah well it's interesting because yeah as you say in more conservative spaces within the christian community there's a lot of fear of secular approaches to healing. And and even in some spaces, just an outright rejection of of anything that we learn out, you know, that's extra biblical, so to speak. Um, I personally don't don't think that that's, you know, the best approach to healing, you know, that I don't, I think we can try to take the Bible and twist it into something it was never meant to be. so I, again, the reason I think an integrated approach is best is that we can take models that have been vetted through scientific research, you know, where we have, you know, qualitative and quantitative studies that demonstrate the effectiveness of something. We don't need to be afraid of that any more than we're afraid to go to a cardiologist when we have heart issues or a, an endocrinologist when we have diabetes or whatever it might be. These are, these are things that, that we've been able to demonstrate are helpful but when we take that thing that's helpful and then we put it put it back through the lens of theology and scripture and say, is this congruent with the tr- what I believe scripture is teaching? Um, that to me is the most robust approach. And and so, you know, because there are, you know, there are approaches that are less, more or less congruent with Christian spirituality. And one of the things that really drew me to IFS was that I find it highly congruent. Um, and so that, that was very appealing to me. Yeah. Cool. I, um, I know too, like there's, there's been times like this, so this hasn't happened to me personally, but I've, I have friends, um, where they were like, not really allowed to look into something like getting help, uh, for something like my mental health issues, because, the first, even just saying, oh, I think I have some kind of mental health thing going on was like a big no-no too. They're like, no, no, you're fine. It's just, you know, uh, a demon or it's just like some kind of unconfessed sin in your life. So, you know, we can't go there. Um, and sometimes I think, unfortunately, there 
we can find pastors who um, even probably with really good intentions can end up overstepping what they are trained to do. And um, sometimes I think it's it's important to um, help pastors, you know, see and understand what what the difference is. You know, what is something that I can help somebody with spiritually and what's something where I need to say, OK, a psychologist is actually, you know, the best person uh, for you to go see right now. So yeah. I think that that's uh, really important, too, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are a couple of issues there. One is just that how, again, in, in more, you know, say conservative spaces in particular, the reactivity that, that we see to um, either mental illness or just emotional distress uh, and relational distress. I mean, it doesn't have to, the, to rise to the level of something that would be a diagnosable mental illness for people to start doing a lot of spiritual bypassing and, and getting afraid in ways they're not afraid of broken bones and and other like common physical um, issues. Uh, so that's one whole issue we can talk about. And then there's the whole separate issue of pastors who, who, um, who don't know the boundaries and between spiritual care and, and psychological um, care. So on the side of that fear, you know, that was really what prompted me to write the book because Having been trained at a seminary, a lot of my clients did identify and do identify as Christians. Um, and I kept hearing stories of people who had turned to their faith community for support. Again, whether it was an issue such as anxiety or depression, whether it was an issue of you know marital distress or whatever it might be, and they were at best not helped and, and at worst in too many cases harmed. Um, because, you know, they, that what I call reactivity, which is driven by our fear, you know, it's, it's the fear of the unknown. With, if people don't understand something, humans tend to fear what we don't understand. And then there are these fear-based reactions to someone's distress, um, such as judgment. You know, you're just not a good enough Christian. You know, you're doing something wrong or you wouldn't be experiencing anxiety. Um, you wouldn't be uh, tempted, let's say, to cheat on your wife if you were a better Christian or, you know, so that it reflects. So there's judgment. There's, um, you know, too often, you know, leaning into legalism, you know, pray more do these things more. Um, there's advice giving is rife in the church and outside the church, to be fair. People are really quick to give advice when they don't necessarily know what they're talking about. Um, and, and there's also, as we started talking about, there's an overemphasis on cognition that, that, that the path to healing is believe the right things. And if you believe the right things, all these symptoms you have are gonna resolve. And so in, my, in the first part of my book, those are the things I tackle as fear-based reactions to distress. Yeah, and it's uh, some of those fear-based uh, reactions that you mentioned, I, I find interesting, especially when you start talking about like some of the intellectual stuff, um, because I think, and I, this is gonna sound very blunt, so forgive me, but uh, in my experience, there's a lot of like, anti-intellectualism that happens within some specific uh forms of christianity but mm -hmm. they but they also propagate like this pseudo intellectual version of faith so they if that makes sense and so 
that's always like, has been like a conflicting thing for myself um, that, that I had, you know, kind of, I don't know, always been confused about. <laughs> so it's almost, yeah. if I understand you, it's almost like, you know, there is this over-reliance on cognition, but it's not, it's not thought that's born of actual serious inquiry and study. It's more yes. the thought of, you need to believe this set of things because that's how we've always believed and that's what's safe. Right. Yeah, exactly right. So it's like, here's the, here's the correct doctrines. If only you believe the right doctrines, then like everything will be okay. Or like your problem is you don't actually understand the gospel. You think you do, but you don't, here's the real gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, it's important, right? They, they, um, you know, people have a tendency, they want to, uh, you know, teach all of this, uh, you know, the doctrines and the systematic theology and all that kind of stuff to people. And then assume that if they get those intellectual ideas, correct, everything else will kind of fall into place. Um, but then once you, it's like a closed box that that intellectual conversation is only allowed to happen within this, uh, contained like a bubble, yeah. so to speak. And anything that's outside of the Bible or something like that is off limits. It can't right. be touched. Yeah. Right. So it's like a weird, like mm-hmm. almost like paradox kind of going on. It's a paradox. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm, I thought it was interesting too the, the first part of your book, cause you asked, I mean, like part of the, <laughs> the big premise for your book was this idea that like Christians are supposed to be loving, right? That's like this, this thing that we say, um, but if you were to walk down the street and interview a bunch of random people and say, Hey, when you hear this word Christian, what are like play word association? What are the first things that come to mind? Um, I don't think love would be the first thing <laughs> that comes no, to most sadly. people's minds. Yeah. 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 Sadly. And that, and that's the, you know, at the very, um, when we talk about integration, you know, so what, what is the most fundamental thing? You know, God is love. We are created in God's image. Love in its myriad forms should be our most natural response to God, to one another, and to ourselves. And instead of things like justice, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and all these ways we, you know, manifest love, we see defensiveness and conflict and criticism and a lack of forgiveness and, and you know, like what's going on here? Um, and, and, and this, yeah. And there is an answer to what's going on here. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, what role, so this is me just, you know, spitballing, but what role do you think something like, uh, an emphasis on certainty might play into the conversation? Um, because I think a lot of times if, if we have this emphasis on certainty and like, these are our correct beliefs and we have to be certain about them then we can twist what the word love means, I guess, because maybe the most loving thing to do would be just to convince you that my idea is right, which then excuses right. these other behaviors or something. Right. Is yeah. That- yeah. So that love is to fall back on the rules, you know, that that's the loving way is, you know, we've, we've probably both encountered that in, in different Christian spaces. Well, that desire for certainty is a reflection of fear. So when, you know, again, it's the unknown. It's, and when we're confronted by things that probably tap into our own vulnerability, 
we tend to try to protect ourselves from feeling vulnerable with something like certainty, you know, with something like regaining control. Um, and those are what I call protective strategies. And we all have them. It's, it's an adaptive way to get through life. Um, but rather than, you know, rather than embracing the mystery, rather than, you know, accepting that in some ways God is so far beyond <laughs> our, our understanding, we put God in a box and say, these are certain things because that's less scary. And it's, it's hard to hang out in fear. Yeah, fear, huh? It's so interesting because fear, like the, I mean, I just, I think of like, you know, per, the, just this idea that like perfect love cast out fear is like a, you know, uh, a, a verse that comes to mind. And like, um, it it's again, a part of that paradox where it's like, there seems to be so much fear built into uh, some of the different, um, like, you know, Christian uh, subgroups and such. Um, but again, it goes back to your, your original question of like, we're supposed to be loving, but often fail. And it's, it's the same thing, right? We're supposed to be, you know, per, like it says, perfect love casts out fear. So we're, we're supposed to be in relationship with this God and with one another that is not fearful. And instead things get in the way and, and mess it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the solution is relationship. So a verse like perfect love casts out fear can, you know, can prompt people to fight their fear, to be in an adversarial relationship with their fear. But if you think about, well, we need to be in loving relationship, not only with each other, but first with ourselves so that we can show up with an open heart in the world. So fear is cast out, not because it's rejected, but because it's befriended because we can turn toward parts of us that hold fear and, and meet with them in a loving way with curiosity to say, tell me more about why you're afraid. And, and that is the transformation that happens. You know, when, when it's a loving relationship approach rather than a, you know, I'm going to spiritually bypass by trying to cast this out or challenge this negative belief, you know, good luck with that. It doesn't last. It doesn't heal. If you're just, you know, if you're just in an arm wrestling contest with anything that's within you that you think is not congruent with your faith. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Cause it, it reminds me too, I've been uh, reading a lot of, um, this guy named Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, maybe you've heard of him before, but he's like a, a Zen master. Mm -hmm. And he talks about something similar when it comes to things like fear or anger, or, you know, uh, um, emotions that we associate negatively, that instead of just trying to reject them or push them out, that instead we should nurture them in the same way that like a mother would nurture a, a crying infant. Right. Um, and then that nurturing and uh, looking into the fear and trying to understand it can then help like breed uh, compassion and um, compassion can then start to help, you know, work through um, and get us to a place of, you know, where suffering can start to be alleviated. That's right. Uh, and That's so exactly I, right. I thought about yeah. that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this model that I use, internal family systems, you know, the name kind of gives a gives a clue that rather than just seeing it as an emotion that's a transient, like right now I feel sad. In this way of understanding ourselves, we we view that as an emotion that's held by a part, a member of our internal family. And so it then it really makes more sense that, that there would be a relationship because it's not just a transient thought or emotion. It's a part of me who has had some experience that has a story to tell. And that story includes, you know, thoughts and images and sensations and emotions. And, and then, you know, again, it's in the relationship that when a part of the system has a chance to tell its story, then healing can happen. Yeah, can um, can we uh, look at IFS uh, quickly? May, like maybe give us a rundown because we've we've thrown it out there a lot, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm just yeah, right. Yeah, yeah talk, talk a little bit about the theory and then maybe share about like um, like the members of this family that apparently live inside of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I can say right off the bat because probably some in your audience are already thinking, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, <laughs> you know, isn't doesn't that make us mentally ill if we have parts of us? And, and it has been pathologized in our culture. Um, the idea of multiplicity has been pathologized, but it turns out it's not pathology. And in fact, most of us talk this way about ourselves all the time. You know, we'll say, you know, let's say, Josh, when you were deciding to leave ministry and become a, you know, a brewmaster or whatever your current title is, you know, so I suspect part of you was excited maybe about a change and thinking of all the opportunities and another part or parts of the system were like, well, you know, what's going to happen, you know, to my spiritual walk or, or I'm going to lose friends or it's, it was full of worries and fears of, of, of a change. Anytime we're making a decision, it's really common that we'll hear ourselves say something like a part of me, this and a part of me that and they're, you know, so we do talk about ourselves this way. And this model simply developed because uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz, who's a brilliant observer, was willing to have a beginner's mind with clients. He was finding that the the um, ways he'd been trained to work with clients weren't producing the outcomes that he wanted to see. And so rather than like, you know, trying to beat his head against a wall, he started just approaching clients with pure curiosity, you know, tell me more. And he just kept hearing people talk about parts of themselves. And, and so ultimately, um, you know, develop this model. It's not the only, you know, model that, that talks about multiplicity. Um, and the, but the idea is that rather than a unitary whole, when we turn our attention inside, we do notice that there are conflicting different thoughts, ideas, et cetera. And it, the idea is that we come into this world this way, that this is, you know, if, you know, for the listeners who believe in, you know, the triune God, our God is multiple. You know, scripture tells us we're created in the image of a God who is multiple. So it's not all that surprising that we are multiple. You know, one of the things that helps people kind of resonate with this, if it's if they were a little afraid that this means that they have a mental illness, is have you ever done a personality test? You know, the Enneagram, a Myers-Briggs, Strength Finders, you name it. 
all of the personality typologies show us different parts of ourselves. Um, and so, you know, the idea is we come into this world in this way. And there is a, what kind of blew Dr. Schwartz's mind, because in the traditional psychological realms, this wasn't supposed to be the case. What blew his mind was that no matter how much trauma somebody would suffered, no matter how egregious their experiences, as they healed, they always possessed these intrinsic resources. And he named the eight C's. And of course, will I be able to remember all of them right this minute? But there are <laughs> these things like curiosity is huge, compassion, clarity, calm, confidence, courage, creativity, and connection. Look at that. I did it. Um, that's not the, the exhaustive list of all the ways we manifest God's image, but you know, any, any manifestation of love, these, this is innate. We are created in God's image. And so nothing can obliterate that image in us. So for the Calvinists out there, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't believe in total depravity. <laughs> um, it just doesn't, in reality, what we see is that people have these resources. Everybody has these resources, but they get blocked. So we come into the world, we've got these wonderful resources, we've got parts of us that have all these great qualities, and then life happens. And we get wounded because, you know, humans come into this world extremely vulnerable. Our brains are very immature. And Nobody has a perfect parent. Nobody escapes shaming incidents in childhood. Some are far worse than others, but all of us experience some of this and it shapes our brains. We make meaning of, of situations. And unfortunately, the younger we are, the more often we make meaning that is, it's my fault this happened to me because I'm unlovable. I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'm worthless. You know, those negative beliefs that everybody holds at some level. And those, those are our wounds. The belief, the emotion, the painful emotion associated with it. There might be scenes from incidents where tough things happened. Um, we hold sensations in our body. So we carry all these burdens. And those burdens are a threat to our functioning. So God also gave us the ability to adapt. And you might call it resilience. We're very adaptive creatures. And the way we adapt is that parts of our system take on a job to keep all those painful things exiled. So the little parts of us that hold the wounds are called exiles. And the parts that take on the job to protect us are protectors. Um, and so we have this sort of those two different kinds of parts, and we have a leader of all of this. Now in the literature, the IFS literature, that leader is just called self because there wasn't a better way to name it. You know, for Christians, soul, I mean, it, it, I talk about the leader of the internal family who's in harmony with the Holy Spirit. Um, so that we're, again, manifesting those beautiful resources that, that reflect God's image in us. Um, but the more we're wounded, the more protectors we have, the more that leadership and those resources get blocked or constrained.
Yeah, I want to try to give an example of what I think would be like, I'm going to try to basically give a personal example real quick um, to see if I, if I understand this. And then actually, uh, like we talked about before, um, I kind of want to share some of my story with you um, to also try to help make some of this like practical, you know, yeah, for listeners. Sure. But right. so when it comes to the, the protector and exile stuff, um, one thing that I have a really difficult time with is having older male leaders um, in my life like as a authority figure. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons for that being, I think actually this is like where it stemmed from was the first church I ever worked in. I worked for two, uh, I don't use this word lightly, but two abusive individuals um, who I'm not a psychologist and I cannot diagnose them. But if I was and had more abilities, I would want to examine them for narcissism um, for narcissistic personality disorder. And so whenever I would get, uh, called into their office or something like that, I was always berated and belittled and screamed at, you know, crazy stuff like that. And so then now I have these like split second reactions when, uh, it carried over into the third church that I worked in, which was a fantastic place. It had very much healing when I worked there. Um, And my boss at the time, Mark, was fantastic. And Mark never spoke to me in a way that was demeaning or berating. Mark never gave me any reason to feel threatened by him. But anytime I receive a text message, even today, if Mark were to text me, instantly my my heart sinks, I become anxious. And so it's my understanding that that would be like using IFS. um, One of my protectors is sending out a response to protect me from a trauma that I experienced prior. Mm-hmm. And so then a helpful way to maybe um, work on that could be when that happens to um, recognize that it's happening and then thank my protector for doing its job, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. then um, like, but also being like, but also I don't need you right now. Like Mark is a safe person. Does that, do I understand? <laughs> yeah, that's a great start. That's, and that's an, I, that's a great example. And yeah. And, and also an example that wounding can happen at any point along our, in our life, you know? So a lot of times um, our, our early wounding is it, it's, it's like the first, the first set of wounds and then other things happen along the way. And, you know, as and, and, but it can happen at any time in life. And so you're, you're a young adult, you're, you're in these situations with people in authority who abuse their power. And so one of the challenging things, if we really lean into this model is that we would see that it was parts of those people, members of their internal family who were harshly abusive or who were narcissistic. Those are protectors in their system. And the more intense somebody's protectors are, the more intense the wounding. And it doesn't excuse that behavior. I wanna be really clear. (laughs) But when we recognize that this is a part of someone's system, 
and not all of who they are, there is an important shift in, in how we view that person. Um, so, so you're up against these fierce and abusive protectors in their systems. They wound you. You're now carrying this burden. And of course, a protector in your system is, it sounds like, so that really fast reactivity, some of our protectors are like first responders. The house is on fire. They are going to jump in and hose it down. They don't care if they destroy the furniture, like they'll do whatever it takes. <laughs> and so you could let's, you didn't say this was true for you. So, but I'm just kind of going, you know, like to give another example, let's say in response, you had this kind of first responder in your system who just like yelled back at people like that, you know, and you would just like, I can outdo, you know, you, you want to be cruel to me, I could be cruel back, you know, so that's one thing that could happen as a protective response. Um, another protector, you know, could have a very different kind of strategy of avoidance. And, you know, like, I am, I'm going to hide from anybody I think could possibly <laughs> criticize me. Yeah, that and that's definitely that I do a lot of that. I do a lot of hiding. Um, I do not like conflict. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you know, in and maybe there were other incidents earlier in your life that that you know weren't comfortable either, but then you had this really egregious season where conflict was damaging, you know, because abuse like that leaves you with feelings of defectiveness, which provoke shame. And, and that is really painful stuff in our system. And, and so our protectors, you know, they, parts of us take on these protective roles because they don't want that to keep happening. Yeah. And then um, when something gets introduced then to the, to like a, a, a trauma experience um, that something like spirituality that at least in my mind, that seems to then ramp up the level of trauma or something like that. Uh, like for example, when I, at that same church, um, what they were like really big on perfection and it was all about numbers and results and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I remember I was tasked with putting together this event and, um, I put it all together. It worked out in my mind. It went wonderful. Everybody had a great time. Um, but then the next day when we debriefed it, there was not a single positive thing said about it. Um, you know, the numbers weren't good enough or this or that or whatever. But then uh, not only was that brought, but then a spiritual slight was brought into the conversation as well. I was told that obviously I didn't care enough about this event. And that is why the results were bad because why would God trust me with his people to come to something that I didn't give a shit about? And that the reason it was bad was because God wasn't going to bless my work because I didn't do it right. And so now that's adding, do you see what I mean by that feels, yeah. that yeah. feels like more. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. now, now you have this harsh, perfectionistic, critical part of this person who's, who's leading their system, if you will. You know, you can think of it as they're so blended with this part of them that we diagnose it, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they are not only taking you to task about a job done. Now they're calling into question 
your relationship with God, your value and worth <laughs> as a human. Um, yeah. So yes, that is a whole different level of, of abuse. So in, um, when you, so since you uh, do integrate like uh, psychology and theology together is dealing with something like spiritual abuse, something that you do on like a regular basis or mm-hmm. like, cause I've, I've seen, so I, I'll be honest. I tried to go to therapy one time and I found a Christian therapist that they were licensed and everything like that. Um, we got in a disagreement over how the Bible works and then I didn't go there anymore. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, it's tricky. You really, you know, again, for listeners who let's say would feel more comfortable if their therapist is a Christian because they feel like at least their spirituality might be respected and not, you know, I mean, in worst case, like out in the secular realm, worst case, you have somebody who's hostile to Christianity. Well, that wouldn't be therapeutic, you know? So, so it's this tricky thing where you want someone who respects your faith and yet is well-trained. There are only secular approaches to psychotherapy that have been scientifically validated. Biblical counseling is not psychotherapy. And so let's be clear about that distinction. And so it's really incumbent upon, unfortunately, you know, it, you have to do your homework and you have to vet people and find out, you know, what is their training and, and how are, you know, because any therapist really should meet the client where they are in their spirituality. It's not about me imposing my spirituality on my client. It's where, where are they? And then meeting that and respecting that. Um, and so that's, that's super important. Yeah, that, yeah. And that was, that was my experience. And then I did, but I did, I ended up um, working with the spiritual director for a really long time, uh, mm-hmm. who is fantastic. And I know, so spiritual direction is not therapy. And right. my, she told me literally every time that I met with her that I needed to go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, she is wonderful. Her name is, yeah, Sarah, yeah, yeah. and uh, I love her, but she was super instrumental in, um, helping me with a lot of uh, some of the the spiritual side of things, because then what ended up happening was um, through theology, I like basically had this image of God that um, when I was honest, I didn't actually want to get to know. So not only did I have all this knowledge and Mm -hmm. I didn't have the experiential knowledge, but part of my block was I didn't want to get to know that God because he sounds awful (laughs) and he's just going to be mad at me and pissed and it's not going to be good. And so like, she uh, helped me with a lot of uh, that kind of stuff, the, you know, breaking down um, some like theological commitments that I had um, in a way deconstruction, if people are are comfortable with that language. Um, Yeah. So that was really cool. But uh I'm, I'm rambling now, so forgive me, but one thing I, I wanted to come back to, cause I thought it was, was really important and it, it is a difficult thing, but I've found that when leaning into it, it is actually, it brings a lot of healing, which I guess is the premise of your book for restoring relationships. And it is that idea that recognizing um, that these systems exist in other people and that doesn't, that's not the core of who they are. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of uh, you know, Paul talking about, you know, we don't battle against flesh and blood, you know, people are not our enemies, but, um, uh, principalities and powers of darkness, which 
I'm not going to go into demons. I did an episode <laughs> about Satan like a couple episodes back. If you guys want to go listen, go do that. Um, but Tiknak Khan also talks about like people are not enemies. It's things like hatred and uh, violence and anger. Those, you know, those are the things. And so when we can um, seek to understand others and have compassion, that can uh, help, you know, um, bring about transformation because people just, we need help. All of us need help being transformed, not just, you know, let me write you off because you were terrible. <laughs> yeah. And the premise, you know, the premise of my book is that that starts within, you know, that, that we, as, as we connect with these different parts of ourselves who hold those same things that hold anger, who hold bitterness, who hold, you know, whatever painful things they hold, um, as that transformation occurs internally, as, as we heal, we, our heart is more and more open. We are, we are less threatened by say somebody else's fierce, you know, uh, say abusive part, more able to lean into like one of the C's is confidence. Another C is courage. So we can lean into those resources we possess to set healthy boundaries. We don't take that. And at the same time, have the compassionate understanding that, wow, that person is deeply wounded. And that is coming from their pain. Now, that doesn't mean I have to, that I don't set a healthy boundary, that, would, that I have to expose myself to it. But we can maintain both. We can have a healthy boundary and also maintains a compassionate awareness this other person is in pain. You know, and so going back to what you alluded to, Josh, as far as, you know, how do we do this with ourselves? You know, you mentioned, okay, so this protector shows up. So am I supposed to, you know, like say, thanks, but I don't need you. So kind of, kind of. So what we, what we do when we start going inside ourselves, the first thing we do notice usually is the activity of these protectors. They're just trying to keep us safe. They're afraid if they don't do their jobs, that, that whatever wounding we hold is going to flood us. We're not going to be able to function in life. We're going to be undone, you know? Um, and so we, it's again, internal family. Some people like to, to think of it. Like I had clients that it would like draw a conference room with their different parts around a table. <laughs> and, and just like in our external world, good conversations happen one-on-one. So if everybody's talking all at once, you can't, can't get anything done. So, so we, we get curious about like, I, you know, I, if for any of your listeners who are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram one. So guess what? I have a robust inner critic <laughs> and it's been really healing to get to know her, you know, and I remember talking to somebody on a podcast and she said, wait a minute, what? you're going to make friends with your inner critic. What do you really, what, you know, <laughs> that blew her mind, but, but she's there to protect me from feeling not good enough. So enough early experiences happened in my life that left, you know, little parts of me thinking I'm not good enough. And that brings a lot of shame. And so inner critics take on this job because they think if I criticize you first, I control you first, then those outside people can get to you, you know? And, and so rather than like, again, trying to arm wrestle an inner critic, 
I turn toward her and say, hey, hi, you know, I, I get that you're trying to help me. Can you tell me more about this job you're doing? Why are you doing it? What made you show up just now? You know, and, and the, the kind of key question with our protectors, once we get to know them, like the first time you meet somebody in the world, you don't ask the, the, like the toughest question. So we want to take our time, get to know these parts of us. But when there's some trust and we feel like they're, they're connecting with us, like they're responding, they seem to be open to talking. And we can ask them, well, what are you afraid would happen if you weren't doing this? And that's really when they show us the vulnerability. Well, if I don't criticize you, then this little part of you is going to, here comes the shame, you know, flood your system. So this is the process of befriending the protectors. And then it's like, you can be in a situation where in comes the text from Mark and you feel that protector. Like if you've spent some time getting to know him, then when that text comes, you can say, yeah, I feel you. Thank you. But it really is safe. And in that case, they will relax. If we just start by saying, I don't need you, they're not going to be very responsive to that, right? You know, because first they need to know that we do see them, we do get it, we see how important their job is, and, and then they get more flexible. Yeah, that um, inner critic is a, is a big one for me too. Um, I'm so I'm a seven wing eight, um, but inner critic and like just the idea that you talked about the like self acceptance that like those those are like my biggest current struggles in life, <laughs> and I um, I am able to uh, be vulnerable or put off uh, like make people think that I am good at being vulnerable, uh, and I can do that when I want to. Um, mm -hmm. however, most of the time I don't do that. And I try to hide behind things like my intellect, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if I can intellectualize something and then it just explain it like that, it's helpful. And I'll even do that. Um, like sometimes that can get in the way of, uh, myself because I'll try to like self-diagnose or like self, uh, ex just explain something away intellectually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. rather than doing the accepting first. Yeah. And so like and I, my self-esteem is like non-existent and my inner critic is like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so like those, those things are like personally what I've been working on most recently is that, yeah. that self-acceptance. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, you know, you named some different protectors, you know, you, you have some protectors that are sort of a lot of us do like those analysts the thinkers you know those are often sort of these proactive parts of us that like if I study hard enough and I know all that information and I have every answer I am never going to get caught not knowing which is the the not knowing is whoosh now I'm into my vulnerability <laughs> you know um and so that's you know it's it's getting to know those parts of you. And, and again, you know, the process of healing is as they trust us, then they give us access to the tender stuff. And then we can connect with those parts that hold these wounds. And there's a process of, you know, essentially letting them tell their story and 
you know, having the opportunity. So our thinkers think they know the story, but it is very different for the part of us who actually had the experience to tell the story. You know, so like, for example, Josh, you told me probably from a storyteller thinker part of you told me about this story of, you know, what happened to you at this church. Because if it was the part of you who was actually wounded telling the story, then you're into the emotion. Then you're into like, I'm feeling it. And that happens, you know, we only do that when it's safe to do that. And, and, so, and a lot of times like people will ask, well, how much of this can I do on my own? When it comes to that really tender, vulnerable stuff, a lot of times we need, you know, a trained guide to help us get there and help, help us unpack that. Um, but we can get to know our protectors pretty, you know, on our own. Yeah, that, huh. It's interesting you say it, you say it that way too, because um, one thing that will happen to me a lot and it would happen uh, during spiritual direction, but also when I'm preaching, specifically when I'm preaching, um, I will just, depending on what I'm talking about, it I will be flooded with emotion and I'll start crying and my students would make fun of me, not actually, but you know, they would make fun of me um, or it would happen. It would happen during um, like I said, spiritual direction. And I think what's interesting is because there's something going on, like I'll speak woo woo for a little bit, but I think especially in something like preaching, um, when hopefully my goal when I was preaching would be to like, you know, I've heard it said that like a good spiritual teacher is, is just somebody who is able to, um, allow the Holy spirit within them, or I I like to use the word Christ, allow the Christ within them to reach out and draw out the Christ in other people. So we're able to go into that place. And then that's kind of what, what does the work, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so I think once I got into like a flow where something like that was happening, that also too brings the vulnerability. And I was no longer just an intellectual thing for me. It wasn't just, here's my story, but it actually like opened me up to like the actual place where that sits at, or, you know, where, um, it might sound weird, but like where that is located in my body or something like that. Yeah. Well, it doesn't sound weird to me. might sound weird to your listeners, but these parts reside in our bodies, you know, and, and we are such heady people, but you know, we joke in the IFS community, the head is part of the body after all. So our parts reside in our bodies. And, and when you begin connecting, just as an aside for listeners, but, you know, you'll find a particular protector hangs out in a particular part of your body. It might be your gut, might be your neck, shoulders, head, whatever, um, arms, you know. Um, but that's an aside. Back to your point you in that space, your protectors have relaxed and there is that flow and there is that unity of soul and spirit Christ within us that, that, you know, our protectors are like bathed in that love. So they relax. And that's, that's the ideal. And the more, the more of that, we, you know, I talk in my book about a new spiritual practice, you know, we don't just pray once we don't worship once this process of connecting with these different parts of ourselves is a practice that's ongoing you know and um ideally and that's where healing can happen and transformation 
Yeah. And for people who are like me and that love instant gratification, uh, patience <laughs> is really important. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And it, yeah, yeah. Cause it like any good relationship, it takes time to cultivate a good relationship. And, and that's why I like to emphasize the word practice, you know, doing it repeatedly and um, it really bears fruit. Mm. Yeah. So like if listeners wanted to say they're super interested in this and they are able to go out and find um, like a, a licensed therapist that can help them in this way, is IFS something that can be um, like, can you kind of learn how to do that? yourself or is it always something that works best just between you know two people having these ongoing conversations like what is the what is that that role end up looking like yeah well we absolutely believe that that people can learn to do this themselves what i don't like to set people up for failure we are so primed to think well something's wrong with me so I don't, I don't want people to think, oh yeah, I can just go out there and I'm going to connect with the deepest trauma I've ever experienced all by myself, <laughs> you know, because our systems are wired to protect us from that. Uh, that's how we survive. That's how we get through life. And so it really depends on how, how much wounding there's been, um, how much um, someone would need a trained, you know, IFS therapist or practitioner to help them you know, get to those deeper wounds. Um, so it's kind of a both and, you know, there are things we can do on our own. We can begin to just turn our attention inside. Um, one of the, the things that we talk about is a U-turn, a Y-O-U turn. So let's say, you know, you have a, a difficult conversation with somebody, something or something you read provokes your system and you notice, oh, you know, I'm... I'm irritated or I'm, you know, whatever. It's that, ooh, okay, let me try this. Turn your attention inside, make that U-turn. There's a part of you that's gotten stirred up. You know, can I connect with it, you know, with curiosity? So it would be really easy to do this if only one part of us showed up at a time. Unfortunately, usually it's more than one. And so we have to ask other parts to step back. And I, I, the analogy I use with clients is like a stage, you know, where one part is under the spotlight in the center stage and the rest are in the wings. And so we can have this one-to-one -one conversation. And we'll, we'll know if, if other parts have relaxed, if I can just be curious. You know, like, so if I'm trying to connect with my, this critical part of me and I'm feeling, mm, I'd really rather avoid her or she scares me today, or I'm really tired of her. Why does she keep showing up after all this time and all this work? Well, that's other parts of me. And so I have to start by saying, okay, gang, I get it. But if you'll let me talk to her, the more she gets to know me and trust me, the less she's going to have to run the show. So it is a process of negotiation. When we get to that one-to-one -one space and we can just have a conversation just like we would with anybody else. Yeah, thank you for that. Because I And the reason I ask is because I know myself too well. I, I'm the kind of person that, I mean, you can see I have all these bookshelves here behind me and I, I tend to like hear something and then like, oh, great. Now I'm going to like 
go read everything I can about that. I'm going to do it and everything is going to be fine. And it never works. Of course not. Right. Cause that's not how it works. And so um, it, it's helpful. It provides good motivation for, for listeners as well that are, are like myself. Um, and actually I've been, I've been talking to my wife a lot recently about like actually going back to therapy, like finding a therapy to actually work a therapist that, you know, I connect well with and that, that um, would work well, just because even um, I've noticed that like after leaving ministry, which I did, one of the main reasons I left was just mental health. Like I, I couldn't do it. Like being in a position where anytime I had to go talk to Mark and it was like, you know, crippling anxiety, there's, that's no way to work. (laughs) Right. It, It just, it would destroy it. And so, um, that was one of the main reasons I, I stopped. And within my current role as a brewer <laughs> making beer, um, it's definitely gotten better. And I was like, oh, great. Problem solved. Never going to church again <laughs> now, you know. But then um, after being in this uh, industry um, for a while, you actually see, well, no, that's not true. These same exact kind of things uh, still exist. I didn't solve the problem. It wasn't as easy as piecing out. Um, and actually, no, I need to, to do something about this. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And it's, it's natural. Again, it's protective parts of us. We want to minimize, we want to avoid, they're all just trying to help us, you know? And, and so when we can negotiate with them and say, you know what, if we could heal this stuff, you wouldn't have to work so hard. And it's always fun when you get connected with a protector in your system and you ask them, well, do you like this job you have to do? Nine times out of 10, they hate it. They don't want to do what they're doing. They would much rather do something else. Sometimes you'll ask them, well, what would you rather be doing? And they say, I'd rather be asleep. You know, <laughs> like they work really hard. And, and so it does, it does take, um, you know, intentional connection to, to, again, allow those really vulnerable parts of us to tell their story. Um, and, and that heals. And, you know, we could get all heady about this, Josh, and talk about neural networks and our brain and all that stuff. But basically, when we're connecting with them and letting them tell the story, we are re- rewiring our brains. We have held a certain story. And when we can enter that story, and retell it and, you know, tell it fully and release what's been held and have a do-over. Like one of the important parts of healing can be, you know, what would it be like to be in that situation with Christ present or with this adult self present who could advocate for me, you know, who might want to say some stuff to the parts of those people that were so hurtful. That's healing. You know, the imagination is a very powerful um, resource that God's given us for healing. Yeah. And I just anecdotally, I, um, I stumbled upon imaginative, imaginative prayer, which is like mm-hmm. something that St. Ignatius taught a lot of. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that had been really healing uh, for yeah. myself. I, I talked about a really cool experience I had using imaginative prayer um, on an episode a while back that I did with my buddy, Greg. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one thing that I would do. I was, you know, with my, um, when I was going to, to spiritual direction, one of the big fears that I had was that like, if I stopped being a pastor, that like, God wouldn't love me anymore. Right. Yeah. That like, I was somehow, this was my calling. This was my vocation, right? This is what I've been told since I was 
young, right? They stuck a microphone in my hand when I was like 13. And so like, I I would be letting down all these people. I would be letting down God. I'm somehow like, am I giving God the middle finger? Like I'm not, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I would do these imaginative prayers uh, where I would like pray and, and Jesus would be at the bar that I was working at. And like, um, it's, we would do really cool exercises like that. And, uh, yeah. she would ask questions about like, you know, where at the bar is Jesus sitting? Like, what does it look like for you to, you know, approach mm-hmm. Jesus here at the bar, like stuff like that. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it was, was really crazy. And then eventually one day I was doing that practice and, um, in my prayer, Jesus wasn't at the bar anymore. And I was freaking out. I was like, well, what the heck? And uh, instead, I, I found that Jesus was um, at the door uh, of the bar. And, and um, because of that experience and, and a few other things, I ended up actually leaving that particular place. And I'm, I'm where I am now. But um, yeah, that's the imagination is insanely powerful. Yeah. And it often gets written off as like just la la land or something like that. But yeah, no, I, I do. I think it's important to, to recognize people sometimes think if we imagine it, it's not real. <clears throat> but we imagine we wouldn't be able to exist without imagining. You know, when we read anything, we're engaging our imagination. You know, so it's really intrinsic. It's a it's a powerful resource. And and what's fun for people and I hope fun, you know, if, as, as you turn your attention inside, often we will get an image of a part of us and, you know, uh, um, and, you know, not always, sometimes they're just sensations in the body. And I don't say just in a, like a less than way, it's simply a sensation. And, and, you know, you just, that is the part of me. It's, it, it, it resides in my chest. It's always tight. I can feel it's fear or whatever. And that's what we get. Um, but it is fun when there is an image because we're pretty visual people. So it helps connect. Yeah, most definitely. Well, uh, Molly, thank you um, so much for your time. Thank you for being, you know, taking on the idea of publishing a book in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, it's so helpful. I mean, it's helped me. Um, I know I want to be able to take more time and and go through it again. Um, Listeners, obviously uh, do yourself a favor and go pick up a copy restoring relationship transforming fear into love through connection. Um, but also don't, I guess maybe part of my advice would be don't just try to do the whole, uh, like deconstruction stuff by yourself. (laughs) Um, it's okay to, it's okay to get help. Um, it's okay to, uh, find somebody to, you know, walk this journey, uh, with you. You don't have to do it all by yourself. And so, um, there's really wonderful people like Molly out there. Um, Thank you. Yeah, well, and I try to, I do, you know, my social media posts, people can find me at Molly LaCroix LMFT on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Um, you know, they're little, like little tidbits to help people with this practice. And then, you know, my website is mollylacroix.com. And if they want to subscribe, I just send one once a month, just uh, something where, again, people can you know, think about some like befriending their inner critic or how do I deal with anger in my system or, you know, just because those, again, we can't do it alone. And so there are some, some helpful things um, if people want to dip their toe in the water with this stuff. 
Yeah, most definitely. And uh, I'll be sure to put those kind of things in the show notes. That way, quick access, quick and easy access uh, for listeners to check those things out. Great. Sweet. Awesome. Well, again, Molly, thank you so much. Uh, Listeners, thank you for hanging out today. Wish you have a blast doing whatever it is that you're doing, (laughs) whether it's driving your car, walking the dog, doing the dishes, or just hanging out. Uh, Have a great great rest of your day. And uh, as always, go in peace, guys. 